Uh, oh, go in there, man. Have a dance party. Uh, it's good to be here tonight. I was told I wasn't allowed to use those stairs. That's why I did a little middle entry thing there. Um, but man, it's great to be here with you guys. H2O Network, first ever conference all together. This is awesome. I praise God. Yeah, there was a slide. I think it said like happy 15th birthday to H2O. I was one of those guys. I just made the 15 year mark when we were doing the shout outs. Um, I started going to Bowling Green State University in 2007. Where are my Falcons? You guys should be excited, right? Okay, good, yeah. Uh, 2007, I had an awesome time there. Uh, I, I came into college as a Christian, but God uh, really took my faith to the next level uh, there at that church. And as uh, it was really right after my freshman year, we started having this, well, I remember coming from Matt Pardee, this vision of just like, hey, we need to go and be planting churches on other college campuses. And so uh, the Kent State crew, where are you guys, Kent State? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember those guys uh, heading out after my freshman year, and then uh, right after that, uh, there was this guy named Matt Hildebrand, who uh, I didn't get to know too well as a freshman, but he was going to move down to Cincinnati, and uh, he came and, and uh, didn't really have a plant team or anything, uh, just kind of moved down there and knew he wanted to do some sort of ministry, and uh, it's really a crazy story. If I was betting, uh, which sports betting is legal in Ohio now, I'm not saying you should do it, but uh, if I was betting... Um, I, I probably would have said, I don't think this church has a chance, right? Like it was literally just this one guy that was down there. I remember coming down as a, a spring break trip from Bowling Green and, uh, we would just go out and do evangelism and we're trying to explain to people what we're doing at this time. You know, there's actually a lot of collegiate churches around now. There, there weren't hardly any churches like that on college campuses. So we're trying to explain to people what we're doing. And, uh, sure enough, we find this one guy that's a freshman that's excited about what we're doing. We connect him with Matt and uh, really, God just started to, to grow it from there. And so uh, once I finished up my time at Bowling Green, I moved down to Cincy, uh, joined staff there, and I've been there for almost 12 years now. And my Bearcats, I love you guys. Where are you? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, God has continued to do a ton in my life through that church as well. I always tell them, uh, yes, I'm pastoring this church, but that church, like you guys, my Bearcats, you minister to me a ton as well. Like, I love you guys, and seriously, I am a better man of God because of the, the impact that you guys have on my life. And, and I hope that all of you, you know, some of you guys, uh, I haven't interacted with you as much. I know I've had the chance to preach at some of your other churches. Uh, I know maybe you've heard me at LT before, something like that. Um, but regardless, just this whole network, I want you guys to know, man, God does mighty things through you guys. I don't care if you're 18 years old. Like, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Right? So, so if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Of course I'm getting ministered to by you. Right? <laughs> like, I don't care how long I've been walking with Jesus. If the Spirit of God is in you, you have something incredible to offer to people. And so it really shouldn't be any surprise that, that uh, we have this opportunity to minister to people. And so it really is an honor for me to be here tonight. I, I say that in all uh, sincerity, to have the opportunity to teach you guys uh, from God's Word, which, which has uh, totally formed my life. You know, I love the, the God that we worship. Like, it's fun for me. Just I was over there in the corner having a good time, dancing around, raising my hands, singing, praising the Lord, because he's worth getting excited about. He's the kind of God that can take the most powerless person in this room and do powerful things through them. He's the kind of God that can take the most impossible situation, the worst situation you can think of, and make something great come out of it. He's done that so much throughout history. 
And let me tell you guys, I don't think he's done doing that. You guys love the Bible? Who, who here loves the Bible? Yeah. Right, I, okay, cool. I, I love God's word. You know, that's a part of my testimony. I'm not going to get into all of it with you tonight. But really, the way I came to know Jesus, honestly, was uh, getting up every morning and reading the scripture and, and God's spirit just working through that and convicting me and, and just bringing me to this spot of faith where my life really started uh, to, to transform. So I, I love his word. And, and it, it's a huge part of my life. It should be a huge part of all of our lives and help form us into the people he wants us to be. But just because I love his word doesn't mean it's always easy for me to get into it. You know, so, sometimes I'm lazy. Sometimes I'm afraid of how I'm going to be challenged when I open it up. <laughs> because I know that I might come across something that's difficult, and I don't feel like being challenged. Either to change the way that I think or the way that I act. And there have been times in my life that the Bible has seriously challenged me to change the way that I think and to change the way that I act. And you know, like I said, I haven't always wanted to do that, but without fail, if I have responded faithfully, the results have always been positive. And so tonight, we're going to open up the Bible together, right? And that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing because we're opening ourselves up to challenge, but it's an exciting thing. Right? This is an opportunity. Every time we open up our Bibles, we get the opportunity to hear the, the Lord speak to us and see how he wants to change us. So uh, before we open up our Bibles, let's pray and ask that God will open up our hearts to hear what he has to say tonight. God, we just love you so much. You're, you're so worthy of, of every word of worship that we got to lift up to you um, and so much more than that. God, you are, are awesome. I was just thinking uh, you know, I was talking to you about this earlier, but um, just what you've done in my life even over the past 15 years that this network's existed, and um, just what an amazing thing it is that we're here today, that you've brought these people from all these different churches and all these different backgrounds uh, right here to this spot tonight. And God, I believe that you want to move. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move mightily in our hearts and in our minds tonight. God, work through your word. Do what you do, God. We love you, and, and I just pray that you would, would speak through everything I have to say tonight. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so the, the main text I'm going to be preaching from tonight, it comes from an often neglected and almost forgotten about book of the Bible. I won't ask you guys to raise your hands, uh, but it's going to come from a, a book of the Bible called Ezekiel. Um, I know for a lot of people, they're a Christian for a long time before they know that that book exists. Um, some of you, maybe you're just now learning that there is a book in the Bible called Ezekiel. There is. And you probably don't hear from it very much. And uh, it's, first off, it's, it's a pretty big book. It's 48 chapters. And uh, in preparation for this conference, I reread the whole book this week. And uh, after doing that, I can see some of why uh, it's not something that's, that's referenced a lot in sermons. Uh, or, or you don't see a lot of Bible studies on it. Okay, I'll give you a few reasons. First off, it can be kind of weird at times. Like, <laughs> if you read Ezekiel, you know there's strange stuff. There's like really weird visions, and Ezekiel has to do some really strange stuff, like lying on his side for like days and days and days. Uh, he has to, uh, one of the worst, he actually has to cook food over poop. It was supposed to be over human poop, but he really asked God if he could just not do it that way. So it was over cow poop instead. But like, there's, there's some weird stuff that, that's going on in there. There's some strange imagery, almost like offensive type in imagery. Like there's a lot of uh, sexual imagery talking about just the unfaithfulness of Israel. 
And uh, not only is it kind of weird, but it, it can seem irrelevant to us as Americans that are living in the 21st century. Or if you're not American, whatever, still a different culture than the one that Ezekiel lived in, which was close to 3,000 years ago. Um, and, and frankly, I think that this is a problem that a lot of us have with the Old Testament in general. Oftentimes, we don't really go to that part of our Bible, even though it's three quarters of it, because we're kind of like, ah, I, just, I just can't figure out how to bridge the connections. And then also, as I said, it's a long book. And not only is it long, but it can be kind of repetitive. I mean, I told you, I reread the whole thing this week, and, and over and over and over again, you kind of see these same themes popping up, which means God has something important that he wants to say through it. Uh, but at the same time, you can be like, kind of, oh, okay, I've got it. Um, and that repetitive thing that comes up over and over again, one of those repetitive things, honestly, it, it shows us a side of God that we're oftentimes not comfortable with. And, and really, Ezekiel is a book that has a lot of wrath and judgment that it talks about. Like, a, a lot of it. The whole first, over the first 20 chapters, at least, it's pretty much just all judgment, 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 wrath of God that's going to be poured out. And so, with all of this, now, I'm sure that you can see why we chose this book, a passage from this book, to be our theme for our first ever H2O conference, right? You guys are pumped up about Ezekiel, I'm thinking. Right? I, have, I, I think I've made you guys excited to hear about this book. Um, in, in all seriousness, this is part of God's word. And, and yes, it was written to a specific people at a specific time that honestly are very different from us in a lot of ways. But it still communicates to us a timeless truth about our eternal God that was both their God and ours. And you know, I said earlier that God is the kind of God that can take the most hopeless situation and he can make something good come out of it. And you know, this is a message that Ezekiel and his people needed to hear. When this book was written, they found themselves in a situation, honestly, that seemed pretty hopeless. Ezekiel was a Jewish man he was born about 600 years, uh, or he lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, his homeland of Judea uh, had been invaded by Babylon, and he was actually taken off as a captive along with 10,000 other uh, Jews to go live in Babylon. And uh, this was a tactic, actually, that ancient powers would oftentimes use when they conquered someone. They would take all the best and brightest of that society, they'd ship them back to their own place, and then they would just leave, like, the most poor and unskilled people in that city. And so what it did is that you kind of had the brain drain that helped strengthen the, the uh, new society, the, the conquering nation, as they come back and uh, use these people for the talents that they have to bring, and then it weakens this other nation that they had just taken all these people from, because they've taken away all of their leaders. And so these 10,000 Jews, they're taken away to Babylon, and they actually are treated relatively nice from what we can tell, but most of them still don't really like being taken out of their homeland, right? Uh, do you like to be forcibly relocated? I, I don't know. I've never been forcibly relocated, thank you. Uh, but I, I know some people that have. It's not a pleasant experience. Um, but so, so anyway, th that's what they're going through right now. And, and not only had they been forcibly relocated, but for them, this was something that was even deeper than just, man, I've I had to move out of my homeland that I really liked. I missed that view that I had of the pond in my backyard or something. Uh, it, it was something more than that. You see, because for them, the land that they lived in was so tied to their relationship with God. You see, they were people that God had actually promised would get to live in this specific land. This, uh, there were major spiritual ties to it. They go all the way back to their, their ancestor, Abraham, who lived even a thousand years plus before the time of Ezekiel. 
You go all the way back to Genesis and you even see God uh, promising this man Abraham. He says this in Genesis 15, 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And then later, uh, even after the people would go into slavery in Egypt and Moses would lead them out, uh, God said this to Moses. He said, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you ever heard the term promised land, that's literally where this comes from. It is a land that was promised for them, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's a good place, and it's given to them by a good God. And they lived in it for hundreds of years, but now they've been kicked out. You know, have you ever lost something that was really important to you? If you have, then maybe you can get a sense of what the Jews are feeling in this time that Ezekiel was writing. But even worse than that, worse than just losing something, they actually had it actively taken away from them. It wasn't their own absent-mindedness or something like that that made them lose a valuable possession. They had it taken away. And it was very clearly their fault. They had no one to blame but themselves. And maybe you felt this way if you've ever blown like a great opportunity, right? Like maybe you lost a great job uh, that, because you didn't perform well enough or you had a dating relationship or a friendship uh, that just didn't work out because of a lot of mistakes that you made. Maybe you have a relationship with a parent or a sibling that's become seriously damaged because of something that you've done. You know, God had given his people this precious gift of a beautiful land to live in, but they rebelled against him and sinned so much. And even though he sent them prophet after prophet telling them to turn back, to repent from their sin, to be faithful to him so that they could live in the land, they continued to ignore his messages. And Ezekiel spends a ton of the time throughout the beginning of his book speaking about this sin in great detail, right? And it was bad, guys. Like, I'll just give you, these are some of the notes I was making as I was going through here. Uh, First off, they're called worse than a prostitute, okay? This is one of the ways Ezekiel describes them. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors, So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for favors. You are the very opposite. You give payment and none is given to you. He's saying at least a prostitute, even though she's uh, not worthy of respect or she's uh, breaking all these side of commandments, she's full of sexual immorality, at least she's getting something for it. You guys are are, are seeking this out so much that you're even paying to come and engage in your idolatry, your sexual morality. In this image here. You know, they're also compared to being even worse than Sodom. If you don't know what Sodom is, Sodom is a city that God literally destroyed with fire and brimstone from heaven. Like he, it rained down out of the clouds, d- destroyed this city. And this is what uh, Ezekiel has to say to these, this, these covenant people of God, this, these special people that God had made a relationship and given this land. He says this, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. And, you know, we we can see that there may have even been some child sacrifice that was going on with how bad their idolatry had gotten. He says as well, And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. So as I was telling you, Ezekiel's got a lot of judgment, a lot of wrath, a a lot of, hey, you, you... 
are sinful, you are under my wrath, and you're going to be held accountable for it. And frankly, that's exactly what happened. They were carried off into exile. They lost the land that God had given them. And so as they're sitting in this faraway land in Babylon, they have to be wondering, man, has, has God given up on us entirely? Like, is, there, is there any hope for us, for people that are, have been called worse than Sodom, that are lower than a prostitute, that, that have done all the detestable things that we've done? Is there any hope for us? Will God ever forgive us of our sin? Would he be able to give us back this thing that we treasure so much and to bring us back into a proper relationship with him? Would it be possible to make right all the things that they had made wrong? And God gives his answer to Ezekiel in a very dramatic fashion. And we've been singing about it some even tonight, but uh, I, I want to read the text in full here. We come to Ezekiel chapter 37. It says this, starting at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones. <clears throat> Say to them, Dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Man, this was a fantastic vision that Ezekiel had. He's in exile. He's undoubtedly heartbroken over his condition and the condition of his people who rebelled against God that he loved. And, and sh Man, God shows him this powerful image as he's sitting there. Takes him out to this valley, and he walks up and down this valley that's, that's full of bones. And not only is it bones, these aren't like bones that kind of have a little bit of flesh on them or something. These are dry bones. Like they were like D-E-D -E -D, dead bones. <laughs> very, very dead. No life left in these whatsoever. And you know, we're not accustomed to seeing dead things come to life, right? It's not an everyday experience. If it was, we wouldn't bury people six feet underground. That wouldn't be very nice. But as Ezekiel's out, walking amongst these bones, God asks him a question. 
Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Do you think God needed an answer from Ezekiel? You think he was unsure, so he decided to ask Ezekiel for his opinion if he thought it could be done? No, that's not what God's doing here. Of course not. He knew the answer. He asked Ezekiel not because he needed Ezekiel to answer him, but rather because he wanted to give the answer to Ezekiel. You know, because Ezekiel wasn't sure. He'd never seen dry bones come to life. He was a priest, not a biologist. But he knew enough to know that this is not something that could happen unless God was the one that made it happen. That's why he said, Sovereign God, you alone know. And God went on to show him the answer. But he had Ezekiel participate. He told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. Now, I told you, Ezekiel had to do some weird things. I would much rather speak to bones than cook my food over poop. Uh, but it still would feel a little bit weird to speak to bones. Uh, but here he goes. He goes at it. He's all right, God, I'm going to do it. So he prophesies. He speaks to these bones. He steps out in faith, does this weird thing. And sure enough, something happens. The bones come together. Flesh covers them. But they still don't have life. He had to prophesy again. And it's at that time that the Spirit comes and gives them life. And this is a fantastic scene, right? And God tells Ezekiel exactly how he should understand it. The dry bones are Israel. God's people who were so sinful that they were spiritually dead. Remember, these are the people that were called worse than a prostitute, worse than Sodom, even sacrificing their own children to their idols. These people, these are the dry bones, super dead, that God says he will bring back to life. It's not that these people were too far gone. They weren't totally defeated even though they were living in exile. And the reason they weren't totally defeated is because they served a God that wanted to bring them back to life. And God says he'll put his spirit in them and they will live and he'll settle them in their own land. Now, you may not care very much as a 21st century person uh, about what land the Israelites are living in. But I hope that you do care about the God who promised the land to them and promised to bring them back into it. Because it's in this passage that we learn a lot about God, especially in terms of his character, in terms of his power, and in terms of his purpose. You see, the first thing we see about God's character in this passage is that God is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. Right? Like these bones were dead for a reason. Right? Like death even exists amongst us for a reason. It was way back even in the Garden of Eden that, that God warned Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree because if they did, they would surely die. And we learn that death itself is part of the curse of sin. And, <laughs> you're good. Uh, <laughs> it's part of the curse of sin. And the reality is Israel had a lot of sin. Look at what Ezekiel said about them in 20, uh, chapter 22, verses 30 and 31. God speaks. He says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. God cares about right and wrong. He cares about righteousness. 
He is a good and just judge, and he promises that he will punish all sin. And guys, frankly, I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think we take it seriously enough. That, that our, how intensely our God loves righteousness and consequently how much he hates sin. And we see here he says, man, because there was no one that was there to stand in the gap for them, there was no one there that could speak for them, no one there that, that, that could uh, stand in so that the land wouldn't have to be destroyed. He's going to bring their sins down upon them. As I said, in our culture, we really don't like to talk about this very much. It, it shows us a side of God that, frankly, I think we're, we're uncomfortable with. Sometimes it even makes me uncomfortable. This is one of those uncomfortable truths that we are confronted with when we opened our Bibles. And I warned you, we're going to open our Bibles, and that's a dangerous thing, right? Because it can challenge us. And you know, this isn't just an Old Testament thing either. It's not just angry old Ezekiel. Even if you go all the way to the New Testament, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, Revelation 21.8, right? Here we see, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You know, guys, every single one of us is guilty of sin. And it gets uncomfortable to think about that fact, right? That we're, we're guilty of sin and that God is a just God that punishes sin. And even in the case of that passage there in Ezekiel, he said, man, man I'm going to bring down all of their deeds upon their own head. Basically, they're, they're going to get what they deserve. As a matter of fact, Paul in Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. What is a wage? Think about it. A wage is something that you earn, right? Like, like you, you do something, uh, you go to work, you, you do the work you're told to do, and you earn a wage for it. You know what we earn for our sin? Death. You know, th this is a reality, but it is this zealous love for good and hate for evil that makes the rest of this story so incredible. Because you might think that if this is a God that, is, that intensely loves righteousness this much and hates sin this much, that he would just be ready to be totally done with these people because of who they are. But that's what makes the rest of this story so great. Right? That he's also a God that forgives, that restores, that he's full of love and grace. And guys, this is the, the, the side of God that we are more comfortable with and that we like to talk about, but frankly, we sell it so short. We don't actually understand the grace and the love and the mercy of God if we don't understand our sin first. And so we see here, man, these dry bones, they didn't stay dry. Yes, it's in God's character to punish sin, but it is also in his character to forgive, to heal, and to give life. And as a matter of fact, this is actually the route that he prefers. Even here in Ezekiel, right? Doom and gloom book of Ezekiel, all this tough stuff that's in it. Even here, look at what he says about himself. Ezekiel 18, 32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. This is the heart of our God. And God wants you to hear this. He wants you to turn from your sin, that's what repentance is, and live. He wants to forgive you. But we do have to ask the question, if God forgives, if God's willing to overlook sin, like how, how can he do that? How can he do that if he is still so just? And he, he literally promises that he will let no sin go unpunished. 
That's what, he, that's what he says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He talks about that. So a good judge, right, he can't just choose to overlook a crime even if he wants to. Right? Like maybe the judge really likes you. You walk into the court, you're, you're guilty of a million different things. He says, you know what, I like you, I'm just going to forget about it. He doesn't do that. He wouldn't be just. And guys, th- this is where the power of God comes in to solve this very problem. See, what seems impossible to us is not impossible for God. He can make dry bones live, and he can make a way for us to be forgiven while still maintaining his perfect justice and righteousness. And guys, this is is possible because of the cross. It's at the cross that the perfect justice of God meets the perfect love and mercy of God. You know, I read a passage from Ezekiel earlier that I want to revisit it's that 22, 30 to 31, where he says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads, their own heads, all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, in the time of Ezekiel, no one was found to stand in the gap that would be able to cover the sin of the land. Consequently, the only option was to bring it down upon their own heads. But the prophets spoke of one that would come who'd be able to stand in that gap. You know, it hadn't happened at the time of Ezekiel, but there was one that was coming. Isaiah foresaw this, right? This is what he wrote in Isaiah 53, 5. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Does that sound like someone that you've heard of? I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like Jesus. Jesus who was pierced with nails and a spear as he hung on the cross. He was crushed there. He died for you and for me standing in the gap so that we would not have to take the punishment for our sins upon our own heads because he was taking it upon his as he wore that crown of thorns. There's no one else that could do this job. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only one that can stand in this gap. He's the only one, right? Because he's the only one that had no sin. Him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, not not only is he the only one that didn't have sin, but he's also the only one that could give us perfect righteousness. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the only one that could pay the penalty for our sin because he didn't have any sin of his own that already needed to be paid for. And so you see, this is why Jesus, is, is, he's God in the flesh. This is why God had to take on flesh. And that's exactly what John 1 tells us, that the Word, which was there, the Word it was in the beginning, it was, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's this light that, that shines in the darkness as we, we see this, this beautiful uh, reality that, that Jesus, who is, is eternally existent, part of the Godhead, Father, uh, Son, and Spirit, 
that he comes, he takes on flesh, and he dies on that cross, bearing the punishment of sin, which is death for you and for me. So that now when God looks and he says, is there anyone there that can stand in the gap for the sins of the land? The outstretched arms of Jesus say yes. I'm hanging right here in the gap. And this was done for a purpose. You see, going to the cross wasn't fun for Jesus. In fact, shortly before he went to the cross, he was literally sweating blood, praying earnestly to the Father that he wouldn't have to endure this if there's any other way, right? Read read this, Luke 22, 42 to 44. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, uh, James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Jesus is the perfectly righteous man. And what's he praying? What's he praying? If you're willing, take this cup from me. Is there any more righteous person that could pray that prayer? No. Is there any prayer that could be more effective than a prayer of Jesus? No. Well, let me tell you guys, that cup was not taken from him. You see, the, the cup of God's wrath, this is actually something that's spoken about consistently throughout the scriptures. So he says this cup, that's exactly what he's talking about. There's a cup of God's wrath that he's going to have to drink, and he knows it's not going to be pleasant. He says, not my will, but yours be done. No wonder he's in anguish. No wonder he's sweating blood. Knowing that he's about to go to the cross and pay the penalty for every single thing that we've talked about, for for the the idolatry and the the prostitution and the child sacrifice and all of that of of Israel, yes, but but also for you and for me, for every lie, for every lustful thought, for for, for every uh, time that that we've betrayed people, gossiped about people, slandered, stolen, anything, whatever you've done, Jesus was about to go to the cross and bear that for you. This cup was not taken from him. He drank it. He drank the cup of wrath, of God's wrath for our sin on the cross that you and I could have life. And he did it because he loves us. See, John 3.16 says, "For, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He did this so you could have life. Right? And he wants you to have life because he loves you. Think about that. God wants to be with you. And hanging out with a dead person isn't any fun, right? <laughs> it's not any fun. I remember one time I, I had a, a grandparent, what was it, a grandparent-in-law, whatever that is. He, he had died when we went to the hospital, and it was a very strange uh, situation. My wife will think this is funny, I'm telling this story. But we were all just kind of like hanging out in the room talking as they needed to take the body away, and it was kind of a strange thing. It wasn't very fun hanging out with a dead person. God doesn't want you to be dead. He doesn't want, want to, to, to hang out with, with a dead person. He wants you to be alive, and he wants you to be alive not just because he loves you, but because if you're alive, you can praise him, and he wants to have glory. We saw in his, our main passage in Ezekiel that this was actually one of the motivating factors for why he was even going to uh, bring those dry bones to life and why he was going to bring Israel back into their land. Look back at that, Ezekiel 37, 13 to 14. He says, Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord 
When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Then I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. God is worthy of our worship and he wants our worship. And guys, we can give him our worship if we have life. Our life allows us to worship him and our salvation gives us a reason to worship him. And guys, as we're saved into life, we're not just saved from something, which yes, we are, we're saved from the wrath of God, but we're also saved into something, which is a real life with God and a real relationship with him. This life and closeness that is experienced when God puts his spirit in us. We saw this illustrated powerfully in the Ezekiel passage, right? You've seen it even on the promos for this conference and everything. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Now, this is actually really interesting because uh, the Hebrew word, Josh stole my thunder a little bit on this. Uh, he said, ruach. Can anyone say, ruach? Have you heard that before? Kind of uh, you're coughing up phlegm a little bit. Ruach. Um, that, that, that's a Hebrew word. And uh, it's actually the same word for spirit and breath and wind. All those words are ruach. Okay, and, and uh, we, we see here that this is actually the same thing in Genesis 2-7 that, that God breathed into Adam to, to give him just even physical life, right? Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed from ma- a man from the dust out of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the ruach of life, and the man became a living being. God breathes his spirit in and gives life. It's only through the breath of God that we can have life. But now Christians get to experience this in a special way because, see, the, the breath of God comes and he, he gives us our life and forming us, but now, you know, Jesus spoke about this thing of even where it's like, okay, I'm going to have to go to the cross, but it's better. It's better that I leave you because I'm sending this, ad, this advocate. And who is this advocate? The, the Ruach. The, the, the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit will come. He's the advocate. And we live by this Spirit who is active in leading us and transforming us as, as God gives us not only physical life, but now breathes spiritual life into us that we would no longer be dead in our sins. And just as God put his Spirit in the dry bones that came together and gave them life, he raised Christ by the power of his Spirit and he gives us new life by the power of his Spirit. Physical life was given by his breath at our creation, but spiritual life is given by his spirit when we are reborn. Romans 8, 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You see, Jesus didn't stay in the grave, right? I I talked a lot about how he hung on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. He, he died for that, but he didn't just stay in the grave. He rose from the dead, right? He rose from the dead into new life. And, and, and guys, this shows that he conquered sin. He conquered death, and he wants us to be raised into that new life as well and experience it, all the life that he has to offer. And so how do we live this life in the Spirit? How, how do we take hold of the way that God wants to breathe this life into us? Well, I'd say the first thing that we have to do is humble ourselves, right? Peter said this, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We must be people that realize the state that we are in on our own, 
Like, apart from God, we're no different than those dry bones. No life. Spiritually dead. Right? And frankly, apart from Christ, if we don't come to him, we're going to experience that second death that talked about in Revelation. You're worthy of punishment for your sin. And we have to own this. I have to own this. We have to own this and ask God to forgive us, realizing that I'm not good enough to be able to save myself. I'm, I cannot, I'm a dead man apart from Christ. I can't make myself come alive. All I can do is, is admit the fact that I'm dead and ask God to come and breathe life into me. I need to realize that I have a lot to learn, that I need God's power and direction in my life. And it takes humility. And as we're brought to that spot of humility, we need to be people that repent, right? People that repent, that, that turn from our sin. Sin kills, and if you want to experience spirit-filled life, then you need to let go of it. The spirit and the sinful nature are opposed to each other. Look at what Paul wrote in Galatians 5. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. If you really want to be the, the, the living person, living by the Spirit of God that he wants to give to you, you can't be a person that's also trying to hold on to your sin at the same time. Those two things don't work together. And, and so let us, let us take... Uh, what the author of Hebrews said seriously, where he says, uh, let us throw aside every sin and every encumbrance which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We rob ourselves of life when we try to hold on to our sin rather than repent of it. And so maybe tonight is a great opportunity for you to realize, I need to confess sin, I need to repent of it, I need to let this go because I want to live the life that God wants me to. And you know, as we repent of sin, we also have to be people that believe that God really is a God that can bring new life to dry bones. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Do you believe that God is a God that can make dry bones live? What, what's your answer to the question that God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? You know, sometimes we say that we believe something, but our actions don't really correspond with it. We might say that we believe that God saves and, and delivers us from sin, but in reality, we don't actually believe that he can or will deliver us from addictions that we're caught in. We don't believe that he'll actually change our heart or change the heart of a friend or family member that just seems so hard that we're reaching out to. And you know, it, it seems a little bit weird for me to stand here and say, like, well, well here's an action step that you can take is believe, right? Like, well, how do I do that? I don't control what I believe. It's kind of just like, I don't even know how that works. I don't know how to explain how that works. So don't ask me. But what I can tell you this is this. I do believe there are things that we can do in our lives that help foster belief. Okay, and one of those things is feeding yourself a good, consistent diet of truth. And you get that by reading your Bible, being around Christians, being around people of truth that are going to remind you that our God is a God that brings dry bones to life. 
And you know, another is by experience. As you walk in faith and you walk with the Lord, you get to experience his goodness. You get to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's something that helps foster belief in you. And others by hearing and seeing the Spirit at work in the lives of people around you. I love how we're doing all these stories, right? Th th those are some of the most encouraging things to me. As I get to hear and see how God is working in the lives of people, all these different backgrounds that he he's taken this pe these people from death to life. They're powerful, right? Notice how the Apostle Paul uh, was consistently sharing his story of transformation several times in Acts as he's going and witnessing the people, telling them of, of how he had changed from being th this uh, persecutor of Christians to becoming a great missionary. And as I was preparing this sermon uh, and I was thinking about the way that God brings dead people to life, there's a million stories that I could share, but I want to share the story of my friend David. I just felt like the Lord put, put him on my heart um, because he's someone that if I had met him uh, years ago, I, I probably would have had a hard time believing that God could actually take this person and, and move him to where he is now. You see, David was someone who grew up uh, marginally Catholic, didn't really mean anything to him. Uh, family really wasn't that into it, but he went to the Catholic high school. And as he was there, uh, he, he was pretty apathetic, but he got into a comparative religions course. And uh, as he was in there, the, the teacher was pretty much just saying, well, you know, all religions are the same. They all lead to heaven. And he's kind of looking at this saying, well, what's the point of any of this kind of stuff? And so he realizes, I don't really believe any of this, and it doesn't seem like it matters anyway, so I'm casting this aside. He became an atheist. And uh, not only did he become an atheist, uh, but he actually uh, described himself as an evangelistic atheist uh, or a proselytizing atheist. You can't really be an evangelistic atheist because it's tied to good news. But you can be an atheist that tries to turn other people into atheists. And... Um, you know, he, he wasn't, like, angry about it necessarily, but he, it was something that he was very vocal about, that he would, uh, you know, tell people about. I remember he, he met a girl later in college where she knew that he was an atheist before she knew that he was a Christian. He's like, well, because I, I told her the first time I met her that I was an atheist. Um, and this was just kind of the, the way that he would operate his life. He's like, yeah, we don't need God. Uh, he's, uh, we can still be good people. Uh, we can still respect other people. We can have a great world without any of this kind of stuff. And he remembers being in class one time, an, inter an international relations class, and they started having this conversation. I don't know how it came up, but he ended up getting into a debate with this girl in the class who was a Christian. And uh, she was saying that if people didn't uh, come to Christ, that they were going to go to hell. And he's like, how in the world could anybody possibly believe something like that's so bigoted, that's so closed-minded? Your religion is just cultural imperialism, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And uh, so he's thinking this, and, and he's just angry, right? So this, this girl who's a Christian tries to talk to him after class, and he's having none of it. He's like, I don't even want to talk to you. I don't want to be around you. He goes and just gets out of her presence. And he, he's, he storms off to go and meet this other girl that, that was a friend of his. And, uh, you know, he, he's ranting about just how... how ridiculous this thought is that this girl has, that someone would have to, to put their faith in Jesus to be saved. And uh, as he shares this with this girl that's sitting across from him, she's like, I, I actually believe that too. <laughs> and this, this starts to shake him, right? Because he's like, well, what is, what is going on here? Right? Like, this girl I know in my class seems like a reasonable person that's intelligent, and this, this girl that I'm getting lunch with here uh, seems like a reasonable person that is intelligent. I, I, I don't understand how these kind of things can come together. And so it, it sparks a little bit of a, a curiosity in him, uh, even though he's, he's still totally against this idea at the time. 
Well, anyway, this, this girl that he had gotten lunch with uh, senses that God's doing something in his life. She says, I, I want to get, get you a Bible. And he's like, I don't, I don't want a Bible. You know, she gets him a Bible anyway. And uh, <laughs> so, so she, she gets him a Bible. And uh, so you know, he gets it like, well, okay, I, may, I might as well read this thing. And so he told me uh, the first book that he read was Luke. And the reason was because of Star Wars. <laughs> he's a, he's a Star Wars fan, I'll start with Luke. So he, he, start, he starts reading Luke. And in this, like, God starts to do something in his life. He was reading a, a, a passage where the Pharisees, uh, where, where Jesus, where there was a, the woman that was washing his feet, and, and the, the Pharisees were judging her, and, and Jesus speaks about this idea of uh, the, the difference between the one that loves much and the, the one that, that loves little. And somehow a light bulb just kind of came off with, in, in his head where he realized, I'm like that Pharisee. Even though I'm not religious, I'm self-righteous. And, and, and I'm, I'm, nothing, I'm like the bad guy here in this story. And so God started to change his heart, and, and uh, he started to read more. He, he read Acts, he read Galatians, and uh, throughout this, he, he became a Christian. He was someone that, that went from death to life, and it was, it was awesome. He comes to faith. Uh, he starts coming, this was at the very end of his freshman year, uh, that he becomes a Christian. So he goes in the summer, he has no idea how to really be involved in a, a church or anything. Comes back in, in the, the spring semester, sorry, the fall semester of his sophomore year and gets involved in H2O and really starts to, to grow a ton. Uh, he actually starts dating that girl that gave him the Bible. Um, and just to fast forward a little bit, they're actually married now, which is cool. Uh, <clears throat> but they, uh, you, you know, he goes there and for, for a while his faith is thriving. It's good, it's great. But then for some of you guys, maybe you're in this right now, he starts to go through a little bit of a dark night of the soul, we call, where it's like that, that same zeal, that same fire, that same excitement, it wasn't all, all, all there the way it was when he first became a Christian. And, and so even there, as he, thank God he's in this community that he said was so helpful in helping him work through some of these doubts and difficulties that he was going through. And you know, even though he wasn't be- believing it wasn't as easy to believe at that time. He was still operating in faith, choosing to put himself in situations where he could continue to grow. And he went on a mission trip we did called Beatreach, which I, I know some of you guys are going to be doing that this year. Um, and, and God just kind of revived him there as, as he's going and he's sharing the gospel with people and, and seeing the way that God wants to move through him. Even as he steps out in faith, right, you see these cool things happen. Even in our Ezekiel story, right, it, that, that, those bones didn't come together and have life until Ezekiel responded in obedience to actually prophesy. And so, you know, David's faith is revived, but he, at this time, this is his senior year, he's getting ready to graduate, he moves off to Baltimore. As he moves to Baltimore, um, he and his, his wife were trying to find a church. There was one they were going to go to. They overslept accidentally. So they ended up going to this new church that had just opened. It was their launch Sunday. <laughs> he said it was weird. There were all sorts of people there that were, uh, I, who, who and then it was like 200 people the first day, and there were like 30 people the next week because all the, all the people that had been shuttled in or whatever weren't there. Uh, you know how that, that can be sometimes with church planting. Um, so, so anyway, he, he's there, and, and God starts to grow him. They're having a good life in Baltimore. Uh, but, but David had always had an interest in Japan. He had friends from Japan. Uh, he had studied over there a little bit. He spoke the language a little bit. And uh, he, he had a dream one night. And by the way, at this point in his life, David is like, he said, I was basically like a cessationist, um, like very, very uh, skeptical about anything the Holy Spirit may want to do in his life. 
So he has a, a dream, and he said, I'm kind of self-conscious even telling people about this, but he told me I could tell you about this dream. So he has this dream where uh, he's running through a subway station in, in Japan, and he's with his wife. They're holding hands, and they, they got bumped into and were separated. He doesn't know where his wife is. Uh, they're at this train station, and all of a sudden, this, this Japanese man grabs him and looks at him. He says, you're the one that's going to come here and tell us about Jesus, right? And he's like, what, what are you talking about? And, and the guy grabs him. He's like, you're the one that's going to come here and, and tell us about Jesus, right? And he doesn't know what to do. And this guy just keeps shouting this. You're, you're the one that's going to come here and tell us about Jesus, right? And, and so finally, as he's doing this, his, his wife comes back, and, and they're able to find him. She's like, Dave, we're going to miss the train. And then he wakes up. Make of that what you will. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that David and his wife Alyssa are now uh, really any day going to be shipping off to Japan to go and be missionaries there. And, and they're, they're going to be there as people that are, are living in obedience to the, the, the belief that they have, right? And that's my last thing. I, I'm, I'm going to wrap up here. But their belief resulted in action, right? And, and if we want to be people that live in the Spirit, then we must be people that take action upon the things that we believe. You know, I shared David's story with you to help you believe in the power of God and how he brings dead people to life, right? Someone who was, uh, what he said was an evangelistic atheist to someone that's now going to be a missionary in Japan. And he's going there, by the way, because Japan is a really hard place to be a missionary. It's less than 2% Christian. Uh, it, it, people burn out and, and churches fail a lot there. And uh, honestly, I asked him, you know, why are you doing this? He said, my own story makes me believe that there's no one that's too far for, for God to reach, right? And, and that's the thing, so, so he's, he's going. And, and I don't know what kind of action God may call you to. I'm not saying everyone here is going to have some sort of cool dream the way that David had. I've never had a dream like that, okay? Um, but, but what I can tell you is this. We have a God that brings the dead to life. And he puts his spirit in us, and he wants us to be people that live in the life that that spirit gives. And if we believe that, then let's be people that, that, that really take hold of it, that are, that are led by him, right? And I don't mean that just in kind of fantastic ways. If you get weird, if you're feeling weird because I'm talking about dreams and visions, that, that, that's okay. Just Even the, the most simple reality of God is a God that calls us to righteousness, right? And his spirit is a spirit that produces within us Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Be people that, that, that walk in this, right? Belief and action are always tied together. Let your belief in God be what drives the way that you live. And this is key to experiencing the life and the spirit that God wants you to have. I'm going to end here with a, a verse from Romans 8, 14 to 15. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry out, Abba, Father. May we live as children of our God, of our mighty God, that brings dry bones to life. And that, that takes impossible situations and makes great things out of them. Let's pray. Ben, you can come back up. God, we thank you so much for, for who you are. And you're just uh, worthy of, of every bit of worship that, that we can bring you. And we want to bring it to you, God. I pray that you'd be honored by what we sing tonight uh, and that we'd back it up with our lives and how we go through here and how we even treat each other tonight, how we treat the hotel staff and um, 
as, as we go back to our universities, our places of work, wherever we're going to be going from here, God, uh, let us be people that walk by your Spirit, that are led by your Spirit, because we, we are your children, God. All who are led by the Spirit are, ch- are children of God. We want to be people that, that walk in your Spirit. So, so Holy Spirit, please move in us. Breathe your life into us, Lord. I pray, God, that if there are people uh, in this room that, that need to confess sin, that need to repent of sin, that, that you would bring them to a spot of conviction that they do that tonight, that they would grab a friend, that they would do that tonight, that there would be change that comes from this, Lord. If there's p- someone in here uh, that, that does not know you, that needs to come into a relationship with you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in their hearts to bring them to salvation, into a real relationship with you. God, if there's, if there's uh, places where we are, are being disobedient to you, <clears throat> to some way that you're calling us to move, I pray that you would help us to repent of that tonight and be people that move and respond in the way that you want us to. Thank you that you hear our prayers. We love you so much, God. Pray this in the awesome name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So We're going to stand and worship here. <clears throat> and... If you want someone to pray with you, there's going to be people that are stationed around uh, the perimeter of the room here. They're going to have, land, I think they're going to have lanyards. I can't tell in the dark, but um, that, that say prayer team on them. And uh, if you want one of those people to pray with you, I'll be around. If you want to pray with me, you want to talk to me, sometimes I said I'd be happy to pray with you. People around the room will be happy to pray with you. Um, you, you know, or maybe if you just need to grab a friend that you trust and that you know, that you say, I, I need to confess or, or I, I need to pray, like something like that, then, then do it. Let this time of worship be authentic, right? Like if there's something that you need to do before you can stand and sing, then, then go and t- take care of that, okay? Um, but man, let, let's be people that, that praise our God in the way that we live obediently to him and in the way that we lift our voices.